Welcome to the Bible Unbound podcast, where we seek to understand the deep things of the mind of God through the world's most revered text, the Bible. And especially in these days, we are probing into the book of Revelation. And this morning, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. These are the introductory portions of the first great vision that John had in the book of Revelation. We hope you'll enjoy our podcast today. Welcome to the Bible Unbound podcast. All right, we, we've come to uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9 through 20, and this is the jumping off point for the, the series of visions that John is going to be presented before him. This is the first one. It starts in chapter 1 and verse 9, and then this presents the first major unit of the book of Revelation. First major unit is Revelation chapters 1 through 3. The primary theme is Christ in the midst of the churches. So Revelation 1 is introduced with a primary vision that John has of Jesus Christ. And then the next two chapters, chapters 2 and 3, that vision is splintered off and the churches are brought in to participate with John in this primary exalted vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it kind of splits itself up along the following lines. We have the occasion of the vision, verses 9 and 10. We have the commission of John, verses 11 and 19. We have the vision itself, verses 12 through 16. We have the response to the vision, verse 17. We have the explanation of part of the vision, the seven stars and seven golden candlesticks and the seven churches. And then we have the scope of the vision, the breadth, who the vision was going to be for. And it was going to be for those churches addressed in chapters two and three. So that's what we've got. We've, we've, we've now begun, we're done with all the introductory material. And we're actually going to plunge into uh, the very first of John's many exalted visions. Now, you remember, we look at the book of Revelation kind of like the IMAX theater of the Bible. It's the place we go where we, when we want to see things that are taught throughout the Bible, and we want to see them in living color, full of illustrative visions and, and, and images and personages and beings and the pulsating of, of heaven and of the other dimensions. When we want to see these things, we go to the IMAX of the Bible, which is the book of Revelation. And so we want to begin this morning by looking at the occasion and the commission and maybe begin to touch on the actual vision. So first of all, the occasion of the vision, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus, was on the Isle of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So there's the occasion. We have four questions answered for us 
on the setting or the occasion of this great vision that John is getting ready to have. We have the where, why, when, and what all answered for us right here. So the where, where was John? He was on, as it says in verse 9, the Isle of Patmos. He's not in Ephesus anymore. Uh, early church tradition uh, says that he was one of the pastors at Ephesus, either before or after Paul left Timothy to be at Ephesus. And Ephesus was the largest city. It was, it was a, a Roman-dominated uh, mega city in a sense, and, and, and John was the pastor of the large church there at Ephesus. We see in Ephesus, or Acts chapter 20, when Paul called for the elders of the church uh, to come and meet him at Miletus on the coast of the Aegean Sea, there were a number of elders. There was quite a sizable ch- uh, church presentation there in Ephesus. We read more about Paul's struggles at Ephesus, that there were many in the town joined together to, to basically ban Paul, to censor him. The pagans haven't changed a thing in 2,000 years. They don't want to hear what you have to say. They're going to censor you. And that's what they were trying to do with Paul. Well, anyway, John was banished, not surprisingly, to an island which would... I mean, if you were to think of an island, let's go back to the mafia, so, you know, Rikers Island. Okay, so, but, but, but Patmos was abandoned. It wasn't like Rikers Island, which is full of all these correctional facilities. It's just alone. It's just John there alone, maybe some Roman uh, soldiers, representatives of the Roman uh, military. Uh, other than that, there he was, isolated, alone, no fellowship. Wasn't like us. We got our cell phones. We got our tell you. We, he had nothing. It was just he alone in his prison cell. So why was he there? This is another question. Where? He's in Patmos. Why? He was there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Writing of the Book of Revelation is probably, I hold to a later dating, which would mean that um, the Emperor Domitian was probably uh, in power when John wrote the Book of Revelation, probably around <laughs> A.D. 96. And uh, Domitian was a lot like what we know of like Kim Jong-il or, or Xi Jinping, um, the Ayatollah, these guys who absolutely hate, absolutely hate Christianity. Why? Because it is a threat against statist power. Statist power is the position that says the state owns the power and you are to look no higher than to us or else we can't control you. And so statist power always hates its greatest threat, which is Christianity. So was Domitian. And and so John was on the island he was there because of the word of God. He was there because of his testimony and of the word of God. Every time I read this, I think and I ask the question, have I ever suffered for the word of God? Have any of you ever suffered for the word of God? How many, how many of you think that it's coming our our way, more of the state-sponsored <clears throat> persecution. I have a number of Facebook groups. One of them is called Preparation for Persecution, and it's about five years old. And I started it by just presenting 
the various indications of an emerging persecution occurring in the Western countries. I, so over the years, I've collected and collated uh, these representations of emerging persecution in the Western countries. And it's quite eye-opening over the last couple of years. And so we have today names that we should all know. Paul Vaughn, father of 11, he's sitting in prison today because he loves Jesus and hates the killing of babies in abortion clinics. Lauren Handy, 28 years old. John Hinshaw, 67 years old. And I could go on and on. People who are today in prison because of their faith, because the level of opposition and hatred toward the gospel in the United States is ramping up under Joe Biden. You know, the, the question I keep asking myself, because I do follow persecution that, that's happening in other places. North Korea is, of course, obvious big one. And uh, China is ramping up their persecution of Christians in a big way with the highest uh, available technology. And then, of course, Iraq, Iran, Sudan, Nigeria, uh, Turkey, just right across the globe. It's We've never lived a, a day of greater persecution. So I ask myself oftentimes, what is their secret? What is the secret to a humble believer who eats a few flecks of rice, a half a rat, and gets beaten at the end of the day at the North Korean prison camp? What is his secret that he does not deny the faith? Even though he, his family may suffer, if, if he's caught with the Bible, his whole family is killed. What is his secret? I want to know, and I'm asking you guys to help me. Because when that day comes, to me, what is the secret? What, what is the secret to faithfulness? What is a persecuted believer's secret? What was John's secret? But my hope is in Jesus. But I am concerned about that day. Will I endure? And and that's, I guess, the question I'm asking. I, I, now I'm wondering if it's even legitimate to ask that question. Would I and what would be the secret to being able to uh, know that I can... I will, I will stand for my Lord in the midst of it on that day if the gun's being pointed right at me and I'm being challenged. And, and maybe it's something that, and Matthew actually addresses this, chapter 10, he says, don't worry about what you will say in that day because the Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak. And the context is persecution. It is when they drag you before the courts, and you are betrayed by your members of your own household, don't consider what you have to say. But we struggle to gain the proper perspective someone in a North Korean prison camp has today. We don't, we, because of the trucks and the freedom and the money and the bank accounts and the pleasure and everything else, it's hard for us to get there. I'm trying to get us 
to imagine in our minds how difficult it was for John. All alone, absent all of the fellowship that he would have known as a pastor of one of the largest churches in Asia Minor. And he's there in this cell and he's, it's silent as night. And this was what he was enduring because of the word of the Lord. So moving on, uh, the next question was when? When? And, and he, John answers it. I was uh, in, in the spirit on the Lord's day. On the Lord's day. Now what's the Lord's day? Sunday. Well, okay. Why is Sunday the Lord's day? It was the day of resurrection. Uh, all of the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have the picture of the tomb being, the stone being rolled, and Mary and Mary, uh, the women were there, the angel showed up, all on the first day of the week. So there's consistency across the synoptics. Then the church met on this same day, which was the first day of the week. Acts chapter 20, on the first day of the week, when you're gathered together to break bread. Or 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of each week. So it was a day that Jesus rose. It was a day that the church met, but it was also the day that Jesus revealed himself in his ascended and resurrected body, John chapter 20. There are two occasions where it says that on the eighth day, on the eighth day, which would be the, you know, if you're starting from Sunday, first day of the week, you go eight and you land on Sunday. So what was his condition? I think he's, he's hinting that there was a very unique and special moment when he became hypersensitive spiritually, as you and I would do if we were, quote, in the spirit suddenly. I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that, where suddenly you feel this elevation of spiritual consciousness, and you are aware that you're kind of standing in two dimensions at the same time. You're, you're hyperconscious of the seen realm because you're human. And you're also hyper-conscious of the unseen realm because you're spirit. As Paul said, for we look not at the things that are seen because the things that are seen are temporal, but we look at the things that are unseen because the things that are unseen are eternal. And we live there. As Paul says, that you have been elevated and your life is hidden with God in Christ. You've been seated with him in heavenly places. He says, that's where you are. And so it would be no wonder if at times you and I are so absorbed in the sense of the presence of God that we, we feel like John must have. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And then he was given a commission. What was he to do? Verse 11, prior to his great vision of Christ, and verse 19, after his great vision of Christ, he was given a commission. Every time in the Bible that you see that God grants a special visitation to his people, whether it was Job, whether it was Elijah, whether it was Isaiah chapter 6, 
in every one of these places. He also grants them, like the burning bush, okay, he sees a vision. What happens? Well, he's commissioned. He's told what to do. Isaiah, he sees the Lord high and lifted up, his train fills the temple. Lord, what would you have me to do? Here am I, send me. Go, therefore, to these kings. When the disciples see Jesus and he's given them the great commission, he's telling them what to do. It's a commission. So John is being commissioned in verse 11, where it says, saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And then after the vision, and John has the vision, then after the vision, verse 19, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. So this is a place where we have to realize that there are two approaches toward the Word of God. Two approaches that we can take toward the Word of God. We can either read the Word of God as if it were written in a book. And that's it. Or we can look at the Word of God as if we are there with John and he is seeing a spectacular demonstration of the power and the majesty and the glory and the presence of God Almighty. I think it is illogical to take the book of Revelation especially and to truncate it down into a series of words on a page. That's why I suggest that we have been presented to us an IMAX of the Bible. And so it's not to be as though John wrote the words, sent them to the church, the church read them as written words, but the church was to spring back to life and to be there with John in participation with his visions, which is why I suggest we really need to allow our imaginative minds to follow the content as it's being presented to John, as John weaves in all those Old Testament allusions, and he paints this tapestry and this narratives about victory and heavenly joy. There's going to be narratives about uh, death and about judgment and about warfare and about beasts and economies crashing and collapsing and demons coming up out of the... There's going to be narratives about all these things. And we're to follow him through these narratives until they grip our soul. And we no longer look at something like Ephesians 5, love your wives as Christ loved and our women submit. Um, These things I'm telling you, uh, I'm really talking about Christ and the church. It's a great mystery. Okay, that's wonderful, Paul. But take me to Revelation 19. And let me see the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let me see the the Lamb in His glory as the bridegroom of heaven coming to receive His bride who is without spot, blemish, or any other thing. And we are there and we are singing, Blessed art thou to receive glory and honor and praise and majesty, for you have redeemed us from all of the nations of the earth, from the four corners of the earth, from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and kindred under heaven. 
You have redeemed us. Enter, enter into it, yes. That's what the book of Revelation invites you to do. That's why it's there. Revelation 4, verse 1. And behold, I heard a voice, and the voice said, come up here. And the next thing John sees in Revelation 4, heaven. He's at ground zero of the universe. So in a very real sense, that is what happened. But he would probably say, as Paul did, whether in the body or not, I'm not really sure. It was that profound. What would be interesting if you were a, a guard and you came knocking on the, when he was in the midst of one of these visions, would he even hear you knock? Would he even have been there? I mean, yeah, his body would have been there, but John, hello? I, I just want to close with, with a verse that's a challenge to all of us about this very thing. So moving from John's experience to what we want in our own lives, here's the promise that's made to us. For the word of God, logos, atheos, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Our Bibles are our three-dimensional window into the livingness of the life of faith that we have as a gift, the unseen realm. Look at your Bibles that way. In the morning when you wake up, you're going to have your time in the Word. Lord, open up your Word to me that it will be that living window into which I can enter. And I can sense your presence and more effectively obey and follow your will for me. Well, you know, and Peter does exactly the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, hey, we've not followed cunningly devised fables. I was with him on the holy mountain. And he was transfigured before us, talking about Matthew 17, Jesus being transformed before them in this great, vision of Christ's glory. And then you know what Peter does? He says, but you have a more sure word of prophecy right there in the word, which you do well to pay attention to and pay attention until Christ himself arises and the day dawns and the day star arise in your hearts. He's saying, you won't have that vision, uh, Mount of Transfiguration, but you've got your Bibles and your Bibles are more substantive than the vision that I had on the mountain. Like Elijah, after he had challenged the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and then he was burned out. He had just, you know, too much. So he went away to a cave, and he starts having a big self-pity party. And woe is me. You know, I'm, I'm, I alone remain. And, and God spoke to Elijah, said, Elijah, guess what? I have reserved unto me 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You're not alone. God always has his remnant. And yes, we can look at a generations today. We go, oh, this is the end of the church. This is, this is it. They've compromised themselves to oblivion. No, no. God keeps his remnant. 
God's got his remnant. Well, we hope you've enjoyed today's podcast and that you'll join us again next week as we continue to probe into the first great vision that John had here in the book of Revelation. Until then, you have a wonderful day in the Lord, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.